Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week from Mesa, Arizona, is Margot Berlin, who is a Provda practitioner, writer, multimedia artist, and songstress, as well as a really interesting person. So everybody, let's welcome Margot. How are you, Margot? I am well. I'm really excited to be doing this. I've been looking forward to it all week, so I'm thrilled to be here. Awesome. And I've never asked anyone this before, so I'm going to put you kind of on the spot. Why are you so excited? Partially because a few months ago I had a dream about being on your podcast, and it went horribly. I, like, went into the room and knocked everything over immediately. Um, You know, so I'm excited to do it again and do it over and have it be good. And I find that you're a very interesting person with a great imagination. So I feel any conversation with you is going to be is going to be really good. Awesome. And I'm going to turn that into the first advertisement we've ever made for this podcast. So thank you. That was great. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, cool. Well, then, as you know, because you've heard a few of these at least, um, I like our guests to share um, where they grew up, uh, how old they are, and what generation they think they are a member of, if any. Okay. I mostly grew up in Sweet Home, Oregon, which is a little tiny town. And I went to the East Coast for high school. Beginning of the 20s, then back to the West Coast. I am 48 years old, 49 in March. I'm excited to get into an odd-numbered year. I like odd numbers. And um, oh, it's it's Gen X, most certainly. I like that confidence because a lot of people aren't sure, myself included, because um, they're born on like, you know, the the fray of the generations and stuff. So, uh, as a Gen Xer who knows you're a Gen Xer. What does that mean to you? What What is your generation to yourself? Well, I think um, kind of the joke is that Gen X just stands back and watches the world burn, you know? So I think there's a little bit of that. I think that Gen X tends to be slightly unimpressed by things, you know, and doesn't deal well with hypocrites or hypocrisy i feel like as a generation that makes us extra crabby i think that uh the simpsons did a great job portraying generation x with their Lollapalooza equivalent i was actually at the first round of Lollapalooza. that's how old i am oh well, my favorite line from the simpsons is easily um are you being sarcastic <laughs> i don't even know yes. anymore which is from that episode yes so. <laughs> and i am definitely with you yeah i was born like at the end of gen x early millennial but i'm a hundred percent on your side as far as uh, hypocrisy bothers me. I do nothing <laughs> about it and um, Nirvana forever. Um, so yeah, and you're so you grew up in the Portland area, um, like outside of it. I'm assuming, uh, and then you went to uh, the East Coast, and then you came back. So that's cool. Um, that means you grew up in like what I consider to be like an area with a lot of like hippies, except unlike the Bay area where I grew up, you have like real hippies in Oregon. Cause I lived in Portland for a while. Well, I, w- I would say at, at one point or another, Portland has had the real deal for any, any type of, of group like that. You know, I think that it's definitely a place where things like that grow, you know, but then everybody moves there and what it means to be that thing changes, you know, and it gets farther away from its, original incarnation 
Um, so I'm jumping all around, but don't worry, I got plenty of good questions for you. Um, my first question would be for uh, you to enlighten our audience as well as myself. What is a Provda practitioner exactly? Well, Provda is my own creation. It began as a language, and that was rooted in a need to communicate um, specific emotional inner life, the unseen thoughts, the needs and wants, you know, like any other language, it's born out of that need to communicate and specifically to be able to encompass complicated feelings in a single word, you know, which is something German obviously does amazingly well, because sometimes I felt like English was just woefully insufficient, you know, so in, in Proja, the word Akian, um, is defined as an ache, like an old break in the bone, only beautiful, like returning to the home you thought destroyed and finding your favorite toy survive the fire, like that particular kind of feeling, which probably doesn't come up too much, but I think it can be applied to other things other than finding your favorite toy after fire. And in Provda, because it was born basically out of my need to express how it feels to love someone so much and have them be so terrible for you, you know? So in Provda, the word uta means both love and grief because that which has not loved has not grieved and what has not grieved has not loved, you know? So it began as a language and morphed into my spiritual practice. I'd been dabbling in all different kinds of things for my life up until that point when I created this, which was probably about um, a decade or so ago. The thing that really interested me that you said is you... Because I, I learned like German words to do what you're doing, um, you know, like Schadenfreude is like a really good example that is kind of popular in the United States now. But yeah, they, they have like psychological words, but your definitions are really articulate and I've read some of your writing, so I, I see where it comes from. I, I, this is the weirdest question I've ever asked someone. Do you take yourself seriously or not seriously? Because I take you seriously and all this sounds very serious, but... <laughs> um, I take it seriously i mean i i try to have a sense of humor about it i find it best to maintain a sense of humor and kind of apply it to everything as it lessens the the pain of life <laughs> to be able to be able to laugh at stuff but i mean I, I don't have a grim clenched teeth grip on it by any means for me probed is very fluid and for someone else who's a probed practitioner their structure for it might be entirely different than mine because the point of probed is that your relationship between you and God or your equivalent, even if your equivalent is a vast nothingness that spits you out and swallows you back down, you know, even nothing is something in, in that respect. That's really, really interesting. And I'd like to know if you have a word for God in Provda. And can you explain it? Domi, um, that's the word for the divine masculine. Like there's within my realm of Provda, there's your, you know, your divine masculine and your divine feminine and gender's a spectrum. So there's room for everybody, you know, including both and none on that spectrum. But it's kind of those elemental forces, you know. So as a Provda practitioner, my belief is that there's an equal balancing divine feminine to go kind of with the, the divine masculine. And I think that, you know, the fact that there's a, divine masculine for me is just because I was the way I was raised. I wasn't really raised in a religious house at all, but based on, you know, the representation of God that was available to me, you know, I just kind of imprinted like the duckling on, you know, the Judea Christian God, you know, so a lot of Provda is about balance between those two. 
That's awesome. I wish you could see my jaw because it's like at the floor right now. I'm like very <laughs> intrigued by all of this. Um, I didn't think this interview was going to get this deep this quickly. So I have to immediately ask you, what do you think happens when you die? Oh, I actually have a poem with me that tells exactly what I think happens when you die. I love it. Let's hear it. All right. It's called Always on My Mind as sung by Willie Nelson. The God I love is sorry for every time I felt alone, even though he was watching, for he was just watching. He says the universe must hit its marks. I am beholden to the story. I am beholden to the mother of words. Sometimes you get ground in the machinery. He says rape was in the top 10. That's not how I wrote it. He says, what do they think Christ is going to say when he comes back? I love what you've done with the place. I hear his laugh. I feel his hand. I see it clear. One day I die, get promoted, go live in a shack by the swamp. The bugs don't bite and the gators pile at my feet like happy dogs, well run. Wednesdays, God comes over, we make gumbo together. His form, Sam Elliott, dressed as a working cowboy. He tells me the identity of the killer for every murder I ever wondered about. I tell him stories he doesn't know the ending to. After we smoke, after we eat, after we smoke, he leads me to the bar after closing and unlocks the door, for the God I love holds every key. He settles me in, hands me a drink, turns on the stage lights, and the karaoke machine sings always the same song to me. I, uh, like, <laughs> I am spellbound. That was great. I, um, it's very rare that I am able to listen to poetry and track with it because I'm a visual, visual person times a million. And that yeah. absolutely worked for me. I understood everything. Incredibly interesting how your mind seeks answers, but then also has solutions. And I just like, I really admire that. I, I would, I mean, absolutely. The first question I ask God, if he, she exists and I'm able to ask questions is definitely like JFK. I'm <laughs> like, just, just spill the beans, buddy. Um, wow. So, I mean, this is why I asked if you take yourself seriously or not. I didn't say, are you serious? Cause that's a very different question. Um, it's more that like the tongue and cheekness of it all is always there. Not when I'm talking to you personally, I, I want to make sure I make that clear, but in your poetry and in your prose. Okay. I'm going to go out on a limb here. You are comfortable. And I'm going to ask, are you familiar with the darkness? I would say yes, absolutely. I mean, I have, um, you know, with, with Provda, there's the idea that there's a path of redemption, you know, and that there's the possibility of even something that's negative energy can be concerned, can be converted into positive energy. So with Provda, there's more of that energy conversion. I mean, it, Initially, when it first began, before it became what it is, it was more along the lines of hoodoo, you know. Um, but I would do protective magic or tarot card readings, um, healing type stuff, you know. And I, I believe that there's, you know, a path of redemption and there's a path of ascension for anyone or any creature that is looking to return to the light. You know, so there's very much stressed within Provda the idea of um, understanding. You know, they say, you know, love is understanding. You know, so if you if you love your enemy, that means you come to understand them and usually that makes them 
bless your enemy. So it's viewing even terrible things with a compassionate lens, you know, but within the construct of the book that I wrote that includes some of the mythological probed stuff, it's a little more toothsome and vengeful, you know, but I think in, in practice, it's less that. Probably less fun in practice. So back to the actual poem. I'm, I'm kind of dancing around, but it's all together in my head. Um, the line that struck me the most by far, and I'm, I'm going to butcher it because my memory is not great, but um, I'm sorry for all the times. The God I love is sorry for every time I felt alone, even though he was watching. That struck me more than any other line in it. That's the part I want you to talk about. I just want you to talk about that, please. <laughs> it's the easiest interview I've ever done in my life. Well, I, I think that, you know, if if something traumatic is happening or something terrible is happening to you, you know, and there's an entity or, you know, God or your equivalent that you love and there's no intervention, you know, there's this profound loneliness when, you know, something terrible happens to you and there's no one to help and there's no one to save you, you know? So I think in that moment, people can feel very alone, whether or not God is watching, you know? And I think it's about that intrinsic loneliness of trauma and then the darkness that the trauma leaves behind, you know, and coming to a point where you make peace with that darkness because it stays, it stays a part of you. It doesn't have to ruin things. It doesn't have to drag you down or destroy your life, but it's part of who you are. I mean, people aren't the terrible things that they survive. They're more than that, but events like that change you. Absolutely. You know, and I think in that change, there can also be a loneliness because you become someone else Do the people you love still love you. Can you still be loved the same way? Can you love the same way? So my immediate question based on all this is, uh, I found out, I think last week, uh, that you have a daughter. Oh, no. Actually, it's, it's, my, it's my son. Oh, sorry. Oh, I'm very sorry. Yeah. So anyway, you have a son, and he is uh, quite mature, and he's engaged. And so I'm curious, when you were raising him, uh, I know Probda is like 10 years old, so it's after the fact, but were you using the tenets of it and kind of like this philosophy to raise him? Or how, how is it on the other end, being a parent? I think it was... Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was definitely part of, of how, I, how I raised him, you know, and when he joined the military, you know, he went to the, we always had a family altar in the house and people thought like, boy, you're super decorated for Halloween. Nope, it's Halloween every day here, I guess. But, you know, he, he went to the, the family altar to say a prayer, you know, that him going into this knows what the outcome could be for him. And he accepts that outcome. So his prayer was that people who love him also accept that outcome if that's what comes to be. You know, so I think um, philosophically, my spiritual practice and my attitude towards towards death, I mean, I think um, the attitude towards death probably affected him more than I realized you know, considering it now, talking to you, wondering, and you know, in hindsight, what did I do to my kid now that I'm, <laughs> now that I'm looking back on it? Yeah. Well, I think if your kid doesn't blame you for something, you actually failed as a parent. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Then you aren't trying hard enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't get blamed for something. Yeah. 
you know, but I'm, I'm incredibly, incredibly proud of him. I think he kind of has, I mean, he has his own spiritual life. That's, that's just his. I think that, you know, your relationship with whatever it is, is deeply personal. It's intimate. It's just yours. It's, it's an intimacy, a secret, something beautiful shared, you know, that, that belongs only to you and, you know, only to God and, and your equivalent. A couple questions now. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think which order I want to ask them. And the first one would be, we, you mentioned the word trauma a few times, and I don't believe there's a single person who doesn't experience trauma in their life. So I'm curious, is to you, is trauma something that we discover after the fact and deal with, or is it something we experience during it? Like, how does it work for you, or especially in Provda? I think with the issue with a lot of trauma, I mean, I have... Um... Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, and that has a lot to do with the traumatic event isn't filed correctly as far as the memory goes. So it's always still happening. So it's waiting for a trigger. It's waiting for its moment. And it feels like it's happening again. Time doesn't touch it, you know, because it hasn't been basically filed correctly, you know? So I think, I mean, for me, EMDR as a therapy has been helpful as far as doing that filing so that your spirit and your mind understands that this this happened it's not still happening so i think a lot of people are caught with the notion that it's because it's still happening somewhere inside them all the time it's just waiting for a reason you know it's waiting to have a fact but i think that it's possible to overcome trauma and in some ways draw strength and power from it i mean trauma is very powerful and if the darkness associated with it that is negative isn't there, then there's power there that people can use in their own life, you know, in their, their own ways to take back control. I mean, trauma tends, a lot of trauma is about something horrible, which isn't in your control, you know? And so when you say you have PTSD, is there going to be a day where you will no longer say I have it and I had it, or is it like once you have it, it's permanent? Um, well, for me, I think, I mean, the effects are permanent. I mean, there's parts of post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, being hypervigilant can actually help keep you safe. You know, so there's parts of PTSD that have actual positive practical application. If you remove the emotionality from it, then it's almost like a set of, a set of skills that can help keep you safe. And so this is jumping around from probably the audience's perspective, but to me, this is all very linear. What was the first death that ever affected you and made you think about death? Oh, I was very young, maybe three-ish, and my grandfather died. I didn't understand he was dead. I just knew people were sad. And then I went looking for him, and I went to look for him in his bed, and my uncle was sleeping in his bed taking a nap. And then I understood my grandfather was dead and that death meant someone else slept in your bed was <laughs> my grasp on it. Yeah. That's, that's what death meant. Someone else sleeps in your bed. And so did it go from there? Or is it kind of just like a natural progression or were there more stops along the way that you want to. To say I'm half in love with easeful death would be kind of a gross understatement just because I've had, you know, 30 years of, of severe and chronic pain. So I have almost a sensual attachment to death. When I die, I feel like it's almost the fulfillment of a great romance. I'm going to honeymoon with death. I don't know, seven days and I'm bang on that escalator upstairs, heavenward, you know, but I think that, um, God and death and Proto for me are 
they're linked and they really can't come untangled, you know, and even with my, my artwork, I do a lot of work with skulls or bones or scraps of life. You know, I mean, death is the great commonality. That's what we all have in common. And if it's possible to turn remnants of death or reminders of death into things that are beautiful. I mean, especially if you are able to have those bones emote. I have a Madonna and child I made that's skulls, you know, a large skull and a small skull. And, you know, moving those a fraction of an inch completely changes the emotion. I think there's a lot of emoting power within bones because bones, I believe, are hungry for love. They're not hungry for flesh. Now we're talking about life because it's reflective of death the way you just explained it. So what is success to you? How do you define success? I define success. That's a good question. Let me think for a second. I guess in some respects, I define success in part by the the happiness and well-being of the people that I care about. You know, I feel more successful in life if I know that people I love are doing well. I think success in life, if you're being a, if you live it on, on your own terms, I mean, obviously don't go out there looking to hurt anybody. I mean, first do no harm, you know, I think that being able to love in a healthy way and be loved in return in a healthy way. I think that's probably the ultimate success story for me or for anybody, because if you have that capacity to to love in a healthy way. I mean, not all love is good love. Some love is terrible. You know, some love is unhealthy, but if you're able to give and receive, especially, you know, if if you've dealt with trauma, if you've dealt with betrayal, if you've dealt with abuse, being able to love and be loved in a healthy way is, is a triumph because it's, it's not necessarily what you know of love. You know, if you grew up in a home environment that was abusive, you know, or something like that, you don't know what healthy love looks like. And I think a lot of people don't know what healthy love looks like. And coming to terms with that and finding that healthy love, giving and returning it, that that I think is the ultimate success. That's awesome. And I don't know if I would have agreed until I was in my second marriage and now I could not possibly agree more. And it's just very interesting. Um, wow, I, we're, we're not running out of time, but I want I have two questions I'm dying to ask you. So the first one would be, when Margot was five, six, seven, what did she want to be when she grew up? Ooh, five, six, seven. Like around seven-ish, I went completely weird. Yeah, I went completely weird for the Lord and became obsessively attached to Jesus. You know, so what I wanted was to, um, I wanted to to be with Jesus or to give birth to to the new Jesus. You know, I had a fanatical, obsessive attachment. I prayed without ceasing. I thought if I didn't, my parents would die in a car accident. I was a weird, weird child. And I was, I was very weird for the Lord. And I think it all started because this is how long ago I was in elementary school. There was a woman who would come in and if you wanted to go into this classroom on recess, she would tell Bible stories using a felt board. I don't know if you know what a felt board is, but it was these little felt figures, you know, and they can place them on the felt sheet and they stick to it, you know, so she would tell Bible stories and I was completely one, you know, my heart was one through, through the stories and the way she told the stories. That's wow. That's so interesting on so many levels. Um, 
Okay, and then the final question I was planning to ask, um, it goes back to one of the very earliest things you said, which is you defined a word from Provda, and it was about how love and grief are tied together. Do you want to recall for our audience what the word was? Yeah, uta, uta, which means love and grief, means both. So, I'd, yeah, can you just, I, I just have a feeling that if I dig at that a little deeper, you'll say something very profound. So can you <laughs> explain that a little better? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, as I said before, if you haven't loved, you haven't grieved. And if you haven't grieved, you haven't loved. You know, I think that that's really important to remember, you know, as far as quality of love goes. Um, there's a Provden prayer that talks about, um, you know, consume my love and grief. I want to be weak in your arms. I want to be queen of the graveyard where they bury the bodies of unbaptized children, babies, bapti unbaptized babies downhill from the church so that the water running down to them flows over holy ground. I want to be the water that remembers, you know, so I think there's definitely a sacred a sacred nature to love. Absolutely. And I think that good love, I mean, it, it's not necessarily the answer to everything, but it's, it's the answer to a lot of things, you know? And I, I think that if you consider good, positive, you know, with Improvda, that really positive maternal energy, you know, that essential divine feminine, that type of love. I see it as a purifying type of love. The energy can flow through you. It can flow through your heart and back out again. And just passing, you know, passing through the chest cavity, passing through your heart, you know, there will be, you know, I think love can become grief and love can be converted to grief because they are, absolutely linked. I think some of the worst pain a person can feel is the pain of love or love not returned, or, you know, you, you meet the love of your life, you're with the love of your life and it, it still doesn't work. You know, sometimes the love of your life is terrible for you. That happens sometimes. They're just not right. You know, it's not a crime, but it happens, you know? So I, I think part of the basic nature of love is that capacity to experience an emotional pain, you know, something that, you know, you can't, you can't put a bandaid on it. You know, for example, you can't physical therapy out, you know, it's, it's, it's not a wound of the body. I mean, it's a wound of the spirit. It's a wound of the heart. It can become a wound of the mind. Wow. Do you have a word in Provda for how profound you are? <laughs> There's the word, uh, um, profunda, but that, speaks to a certain quality of love, like a profound love. Well, I just, I mean, I, it's been a long time on earth for me and it's been a little longer for you. We're like eight years apart and it's been even longer for some guests and shorter for others. And I just find it very compelling that, uh, I'm tracking with everything you're saying, but I'm kind of tracking, like I'm going, aha, God damn it. Why didn't I know this Provita thing when I was in my twenties? <laughs> so Yeah. But I definitely like it, and you've been a fantastic guest. Um, we are out of time, but I always give my guests uh, one chance to just kind of have the floor. So if there's anything you want to say, uh, please say it. I think that um, people bear a responsibility to explore other religions, other spiritual practices, 
because that enables you to see the commonalities. I think the most important thing we can do just, you know, all world religions, you know, if it was possible <clears throat> to go in and say, okay, these are all the things that we agree on. Let's, let's just agree on those, you know, and people can affiliate themselves with that. I think that people were created, you know, initially or evolved in their environment, specific to their environment, you know, their physicality and also their spirituality and their religious practices, you know. So when you, you go in and you trample those, you are disrespecting something that was bestowed upon those people that is sacred. And I think that if your tradition trumps compassion, you're doing it wrong. And I think if your religious affiliation is is why you hate or why you fear, you know, look into that. You you again, you might be might be doing it wrong. Um, so I guess that's that's what I've got. That was incredible. Um, uh, you're so quotable. It's unbelievable. Um, <laughs> so Margo Berlin from Sweet Home, Oregon, and now in Mesa, Arizona. Thank you so much for coming on and helping us put another nail in the coffin. As always, that the best thing you can do to help the podcast is to subscribe to our podcast. So thank you again, Margo. Uh, wow. So everyone at home, thank you again. My name is Mike Oppenheim. You have been listening to Coffin Talk, and we will see you soon. Walking alone when I walk into you and I see that you see me and I see you hear this tune and I feel that you near me and I see you while the moon